The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Let's take a look at page four. The second sutta, Natalakana Sutta. I wonder if someone would care to begin reading just the first two paragraphs. Yeah, go ahead, please. Thus I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Baranasi in the deer park, Nisipatana, the resort of Sears. There he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this. So please, let's just pause for a moment. So, um, according to tradition, after the Buddha was enlightened, he, so when he had left home, he, uh, at age 29, he spent six years engaged in all different kinds of practices, including some quite intense, severe ascetic practices, and in fact almost died, you know, starve himself and many, many different kinds of austerities, and realized that those were not Leading, as we'll see in the first uh, first discourse, didn't lead to this enlightenment, this liberation he was seeking. And so, um, you know, shifted his focus, if you will, and attained his enlightenment. And after his enlightenment, he traveled back to this group of five who were five ascetics that he had practiced with and done intense practices with. And um, so that's this group. So, you know, Ted was talking about in the first discourse, people who perhaps were, we would say, quite ripe and ready. These are these five are a group who are quite ripe and ready. And so they're the first people. And so this discourse and the next one, the very first discourse on setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma were, again, according to tradition, delivered to this group of five. So these are, it's a big deal. This is really going back to the very beginning. So please continue. Bhikkhus, form is not self. If form were self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And one could have, and one could have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form be not thus. But since form is not self, so it leads to affliction. And none can have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form be not thus. Okay, so let's just pause there. So form, we're, we're, we're looking at this five aggregates model. And so and it's gonna, you'll see it works through form and down below that feeling, perce- perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. They're all there. That's just right out of the five aggregates model. Here, we're, the, the term not self, that's the anatta, going back to the three characteristics this is this anatta. So it's we're using this not self here. We want to be clear. You know, really, in a 
conventional sense, it is part of self, right? Your body and your mind is what makes you, up you as a being. So we just, again, want to be clear what we mean when we say not self. It is you in the everyday sense, but in an ultimate sense is talking about saying it's not self. And the first thing it's saying here is that, you know, how much can you control it? And maybe we could just pause for a moment and reflect that, you know, you could say you can control things to some degree, right? You, if you say you're able to get a good night's sleep, you certainly have a better chance of being, feeling more rested the next day than if you don't. But can you completely control that? No, there's other conditions that come together just using that example. It doesn't mean you're going to feel rested the next day. Other things could happen. You could get sick and everything. Basically, it's saying we can't control things. It's really going back to the dukkha using that particular uh, understanding of it as uh, unreliable. Right? So that's what it's pointing to here. And it's looking at the, the entire, all five aggregates here. And basically first saying that, you know, they're really kind of happening in a way on their own due to causes and conditions not not under our control. It's, he's just setting us up here to try and make his case. Two things I want to pause on for a moment here, where it says volitional formations. That's the sankaras. Again, I want I want to just spend a, just a few moments here and the understanding. There's a wide range of ways that sankaras are understood. Sometimes it's just it, it's it's mental formations is used often, and that's just. All, so much, the huge range, uh, just think of it as just the stuff arising in the mind, right? It's not the feeling which is the, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensations, and it's not the perception. It's not pure consciousness itself, but everything else of the mind we could go under mental formations. Here, when we say volitional formations, it's carving out a particular subset of the whole range of mental formation, or you could say that everything's volitional, so I don't want to get into that too much, but what, what, is, what is volition? It's more of an intention or a will, if you will. Right. So it's pointing to that aspect. And then I've listed, um, well, I didn't list it underneath this sutta, but back when we looked at the uh, five aggregates model, I listed some different uh, other translations determinations, concoctions. Concoctions is, is that sense. We already talked about that. So different aspects under that are comprised under mental formations. So each, if we use volitional formations, we're talking about the volitional aspect is being emphasized. So Sankaras has used just many meanings is all I want to point out. Um, was there one particular shade of meaning that was meant at the back in, you know, 2,500 years ago? I, I don't know. So when we just look at this list here, when we look at this list, I'm thinking that we can all see. Just one moment. Let me. Sorry, I'm just looking one thing up here. Actually, I want to come back to talk about consciousness in a moment, but I wonder if someone would read. The, the paragraph that says, what do you think is form permanent or impermanent? Bhikkhus, what do you think? 
Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Now is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Now is what is impermanent, what is suffering since subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Yeah, okay, so let's pause there. I want to point out a couple of terms and then come back to this, to this one aggregate of consciousness. So this permanent or impermanent, the Buddha is saying all five of these five aggregates, including consciousness, is impermanent. And that's anicca, one of the three characteristics. And he's saying, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? The word there, suffering, it's dukkha is the word that's used. So again, I think unreliable, unsatisfactory, but you could say suffering too, it's whatever, but we want to keep in mind that's what he means. And then happiness happens to be sukha, is the poly if you're interested, which means pleasant or it could mean uh, uh, happiness. Right? So what does it mean when he says, so if it's impermanent, if it's dukkha, it's, he's saying it should not be regarded as self. Now, I'm thinking if we, we probably all can easily see that the first four of these aggregates clearly are impermanent, right? Your body, uh, we don't have to say much about that, right? Again, we don't live our lives as if it's true, but we, we, we understand, right? Body's impermanent. Vedna feeling, pretty simple. Pleasant and unpleasant sensations or in between, neutral or coming and going all the time in our experience. So it's, it's changing. It's not permanent. Um, perceptions change. Have you ever seen the, um, there's so many examples. Have you ever seen, uh, it's a drawing. It might be one of those Escher drawings. I'm not sure who did it. And it's, it, it looks like a young woman or, or an old woman. And depending on how you shift your view, the same lines, you, you see both faces in there. That's a shift in perception. It's a perfect example. Or another story that Joseph Goldstein tells is that um, uh, some students of his had a, they heard a, a chirping coming from their basement, and it was springtime, and they got so much happiness every time they'd hear the chirping because they said, oh, there's family of birds down there. They've made a nest. They heard a chirping. And then at some point, someone was down in the basement doing some repair work for them and said, oh, uh, I changed the battery for you in your smoke detector. It was chirping. <laughs> but it was just a perception that was created. And we should also say that, remember, we used this example where I held up this bell, and I said, what do you see? And, of course, we, we create bell in the mind. Right, that's perception happening. Uh, and there are people who have brain injuries or maybe some diseases where you actually lose the ability. Really, you've lost connection with the world where you can't assemble this influx of sense experience and put it together into pieces and make the world. So you don't you can't make it chair or person. There's just a flow of experience uh, and that there are people who have that. And then that you've really lost connection when that's happened. So perceptions change. That's, that's, we can see that that's it's a little, maybe not quite as obvious, but if you really, you don't have to look hard to see that perception changes. Volitional formations in any of its 
mental formations, volitional formations, that's pretty easy to see the minds changing all the time. But one that tends to be a little trickier for people is consciousness. That's one where people tend to say, oh, that's the me that's in here experiencing those. If you really went down to your core, you'd land into just the pure conscious knowing. But um, let's think about it. Have any of you ever had general anesthesia? Where was consciousness? Not as a theory, but just experientially. About a year and a half ago, I had um, shoulder surgery. So it wasn't major, but, you know, they put me out. And I, I, I remember they were putting a, um, I had an IV, and the anesthesiologist says, okay, you're going to feel a little cold, okay. And then she goes, now, I'm going to put this in, and, and you know, you're going to go out. And I, at the time, I remember um, saying, okay, I'm going to try and stay <laughs> mindful and aware uh, I think she had me counting backwards or something, but I was going to stay mindful and aware and really notice what happens. And I remember, all I remember is in the mind thinking, okay, I'm going to be mindful. And then like two hours later, I woke up. <laughs> Where was I? Where was consciousness? Don't know. But experientially, it's as if the existence switch had been flipped to off. That was how I experienced it. So we could say, well, there was still the... But we're all going on to the land of speculation here. Right? Don't know. Consciousness is conditionally determined. It's not permanent. And this goes back... I was having a conversation with someone at the break. And it goes back to you know, this, uh, an important point about all of these suttas here... The Buddha is making, the Dharma teachings are making statements about the way things are in the conventional or conditional sense. They're saying this is how it is. Look into the nature of yourself, into the world and all experience. But in an ultimate sense, these teachings, that's not what they're talking about here. So you could say, well, you know, if you were fully enlightened and you kind of attained Nibbana, what would that be? And, you know, there's a huge range out there in a world of opinions. Some, some it's, oh, it's pure consciousness. Some, it transcends consciousness. I don't know what that would be. You know, there's a lot of, uh, it's a cessation, some people say. There's a big range. In the Pali tradition, actually, if you look in the suttas, it's left undefined. So we should take these teachings as, we use the word ontology, you know, statements of sort of the nature of reality or existence. That's not how we should hold these. We should hold them as teachings to inform how we practice and live and to apply to our lives. So they're meant uh, to be put into practice, not as ontological statements. That's the way to hold these. And from that perspective, we can look into our own experience and consciousness itself is, should not be clung to. That's what it's saying. I actually haven't gotten to the not clinging part yet in the sutta, but that's where it's heading. So it's saying anything we can know or experience about our being is actually uh, impermanent. And when we really look at that, and we, if, we could, if we could penetrate to that truth deeply, it goes back to there's no you know, little Richard in here to whom all this is happening. 
that the nature of my being is a. I like the way that I've heard it explained a river of being, you know, you look at a river and you you visit it one day and you say, well, there's the river. Then you go home and you come back the next day and you're looking up. Yep, that's the river, same river. But if you actually look, it's not the same water. It's not even the same banks. You know, some of the uh, flood will come through and it'll wash away. Some of the shoreline will change. It'll deposit new sediment. There's the contents. There might be branches or whatever going down the river. Next time, none. There's nothing about the river that's remained the same from one day to the next. Yet we look at it in the conventional sense. We say it's the same river. So these teachings are saying if we look deeply into the nature of our own being, it's not a fixed entity. It's a, it's a, it's a, we're a river of being or a river of experience. That's what it's telling us about our own being. It's not making a problem about it. It's actually saying that's the key to our liberation. So let's take a look. Okay about that? So that's, that, that's going back to this, to this uh, notion of anatta. What is it talking about, about no self or not self? Not self, some people like that translation better because no self can have a, 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 a nihilistic uh, feeling to it. And not self is saying everything's there. We're not stopping off, you know, and again, you don't go poof and disappear. But we don't identify or cling to it as self because we see it's all changing. Uh, one of the questions I have is on uh, the word volitional, when they talk about volitional formations, that suggests will. And there's not self. How is there will? Well, but we are saying there's self in the conventional sense. It's part of the process. So will can arise. But, but there's time. Let me just say, look into our own experience. Aren't there times when... So we use volition. Will is... We want to be careful with the volition. It can be more of a conscious and a strong sense of will, but it can also be subtle and unconscious, but there still is, it's driven by some impulse sometimes. We can use the word impulse. There's still a force driving things is, a, is another level. There. That process can still happen. Yeah, that, and, and the point I was wanting to make is I, I, volition really, I feel uneasy with it. It's almost like comma-driven driven. Formation. Yeah, that's I like that. Uh, you know, karma, comma is the poly karma, karma driven formation. That, that's great. And one of the uh, advantages of using comma driven formations is that comma is not just mine. You know, everybody in this room affects everybody else's comma. Yeah. And it also points to keeping in mind what we talk about conditionality, that it's really these formations are coming out due to causes and conditions. So it's, it's a conditioned, or I, I like to say, when I think of condition, it's just the habitual ingrained patterns of our minds that gives rise to, to the way that these mental formations unfold. Commas is, is part of that. Could volitional also be uh, considered intent? Yeah, intention, I think so. So there's a range of, and they're all, yeah. So it's basically saying now we've shifted models, basically. We're not in the sixth sense. We're looking in the five aggregates model. And it's just saying, look closely. 
It's all it's it's I take it as an invitation. Let's let's come go as deep as we can to explore the nature of our own being. And I think what it's saying is there's, you're not going to hit bottom. It's just you're not going to come down to it's I haven't been able to hit bottom. There's clearly something going on. There's a sense of self, which, by the way, also is uh, impermanent and is just a conditioned formation. It's not that, just one moment. It's not that the sense of self has to disappear, although it can. And another level of perception can be or or. Uh, not perception in this sense, but of perceiving or knowing can be that the sense of self as it's there is directly experienced as uh, just a condition impermanent arising. And I'll take one step further. Consciousness, now how this works I can't explain, but consciousness can be realized as um, not self and as impermanent. But then that gets off, and I, I, I don't want to open a can of worms here, because it's like, well, doesn't have to be some knowing that knows that, so is that a more permanent, you know, I, I don't want to know how that happens, I'm just saying it can happen. I'll leave it at that. Did you still have your uh, comment or question? I think the concept of not self is hard to grasp relative to something like impermanence. And I'm just wondering for clarification, do you think it's a good way to model it of saying there is a self relative, so you say you're Richard, I'll say I'm Daniel, on a relative basis, but then from, from an absolute basis, we're, that's where we're working on a not-self. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. Because that, that helps, because just saying not-self I'm right. sitting here. It's very hard to just get deeply. Yeah, and we have to communicate with each other. So I don't want to, you know, I, I'm just going to say, you know, um, excuse me. You know, I'm going to take a drink of water, right? I don't want to have to. I, it's too clumsy if, if, if we can't speak in the way. And if you look back in the texts, the Buddha spoke in both ways. He would speak in more of the ultimate reality of, you know, there's. It, it's just an impersonal conditioned arising of Conditions coming together. And he would also say, Ananda, you give the Dharma talk. I have to lie down. My back is hurting right now. <laughs> so we recognize sort of and one of the concepts that's that was more fully developed in later Mahayana traditions was this idea of the two truths, ultimate reality and conventional reality. I mean, it's here, too, but it really got uh, uh, developed later. And. So and 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 then the, the, some of these Mahayana teachers would say, you know, if you if you just hold one, either one or the other, you don't get the whole picture, and you have to hold them both, informing each other. Based on what you just said, one way of looking at ignorance then would be mistaking the relative for the abs- the, the absolute for the relative. You could say that. When I think of ignorance, I have my own definition. It's not the only one. I think I go back to the three characteristics, and I use either delusion or ignorance. I think of it as taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, to taking that which is unreliable or unsatisfactory or suffering to be the source of happiness, and to take 
exactly what it's talking about here in this sutta, that which is inherently impermanent and to be, as I think uh, Lee Brasington is a well-known uh, Dharma teacher who, who says, I love the way he says, he goes, he says, we're verbs, not nouns. <laughs> and so this is asking us to come to see that, again, we exist, but the nature of our being is verbs. What happens is, it's the clinging, this is a liberation through non-clinging, there's a non-clinging, or if we are clinging, a letting go that happens. We're putting out the fires, going back to the other discourse, of the lust, hate, or delusion. Right? That's how that informs this sutta. When, and by doing that, this, this is serving us to do that, is to be able to give us this model and to really come to know deeply the tr- that true nature. Yeah, did, did you have something? Yeah, I think that's helped me um, in an understanding of, of this is experience, I think, taking what he's saying. As a verb, experience is, is always moving. And so then my clinging to an experience and thinking that's me, that solidifies it into a noun. When it's just an experience that comes and goes. And for me, my recognition of really deeply understanding that. It's like if I'm anger or I feel shame about something and really allow the body and the feeling tone and the mind to invite and watch myself with all that. And then I watch it move through it. And then all of a sudden, everything calms down and I'm not having it. And I'm not... Mind now has actually changed from this form to this form. And I'm the watcher and the knower of it. And seeing it's like, oh, that's not here. I had that experience, and now there's this experience, which I know will change. And for me, practicing that way and actually bringing in and working with, with clients and actually getting them to watch the feeling tone change as we're working through it, changes the, it's like turning on a light switch yeah. in your head. It's like, oh my God. And, you know, it takes a long time to move through deep past from right. experiences. But it's that knowing of it, right. the experience of seeing that, and I found it myself, it's like, oh, it's just an experience. It's not happening right. anymore. It's, just, it's a movement, a flowing. Great. And again, as we tie this back to our own practice, we want to, we want to understand it intellectually. Then we want to examine our lives and ourselves to see, well, is this really true? And by the way, if, if this sutta, if you don't think it's true... Um, you know, I, I, it'd be interesting to look and see, is there any part of your being that can be seen that doesn't fit this description? Uh, I don't think so. At least in this model. Maybe you could create a, mo- a different model. <laughs> okay, so we'll just, maybe I'll just read this if we're, I'm on to page five here. Basically, there's, so, so far in the sutta, it's done two things. It's gone through each of the five aggregates, one by one, and first said, they're not self because if they were, I could completely control them. And then he's saying, secondly, goes through each of these. Are they permanent or impermanent? We see that they're impermanent and that they're dukkha. Which leads to suffering if we try to cling to them. And then this last piece he's saying, that, basically saying, therefore, on page five, they should not be regarded and he says it this way, it's just more of a, it's a stock phrase that's used. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It's, it's, it's a clinging we don't want to have. Again, in the conventional sense, it is yourself. We want to hold it that way.
And then this sutta ends with um, similar, it might be actually in the Pali identical. Uh, I th- actually, I, some of these are identical. I looked. I don't know if the whole thing is from the sutta, the fire sermon where he says, um, when we really get this, we experience, it's the nibbandanti, again, disenchantment's the word I picked. And it goes through that dispassion, through that liberated. So the, the last sutta said a thousand bhikkhus were liberated. <laughs> this one now, the group of five were liberated. We're moving back in time. It's only a second talk. Okay. Okay, on that one? The part, birth is exhausted. Yes. Um, could you speak about just that part? Does that mean that... Um, the bhikkhus are fully enlightened and yeah. they don't return to... Right. So in in this tradition, so this is... Well, I'm happy to mention it a little bit, but I don't want to spend too much time on this particular... But upon, we could say, full enlightenment or full liberation or realization or attainment of Nibbana, that um, is viewed in two ways. So take the Buddha... He had his full enlightenment, and then he was still alive. So there's what's called, what does Nibbana look like while you're still alive? And that's basically ending of putting these fires out. Uh, but you're still a human being. You know, he still talked to people, and he you know, seemed to get in arguments with his relatives. And, you know, and so we're still, the five aggregates are still happening, but it's, it's, it's understood or perceived or experienced with, with ignorance is gone. So you see things as it really is. And then there's, well, what is a Buddha after death? What they're saying is these five aggregates uh, are no longer arising. That's the ending of births. So there's this idea of this round or cycles of births and deaths. So you may or may not have that belief system. You don't need to have that belief system. Uh, but that's the, the, the context with which these teachings are given. The idea is what's keeping this round of of births and deaths going is coming out of these volitional formations and it's conditioning the mind and it's, it's uh, craving and clinging that gets into dependent origination, which is a big topic that we're, uh, we just aren't dealing with today. And once, once we've stopped that cycle, the fuel that keeps uh, this process going has been exhausted. And so the five aggregates are no longer arising. And so then you say, well, what happened to you? Well, according to this teachings, anything we would call you in the conventional sense, that's the five aggregates. That's not happening. That gets into, well, what's left? Is there some deeper, is it Brahman, that Satchitananda? Or is it pure awareness? Or is it something else that, in the Pali tradition, it's left undefined? It is talked about as nothing to be feared and, in fact, considered to be the highest. There's all these adjectives, the, the most desirable, the highest happiness, the greatest peace, the greatest joy, that if we could really know what it was, that's what we would want to go for. But they, they don't, it's left undefined, mainly because it transcends, I say, the verbal and conceptual categories, which are... Uh, by definition, limited, and they're conditioned also. This is the unconditioned, sometimes called the deathless, the unconditioned, the unborn. So they talk about it like they talk around it. Okay for now? Okay. 
Are you saying the five aggregates for an arhat don't exist, or the five aggregates affected by clinging don't exist? Don't exist when? I, I, I misunderstand. You said something. The five aggregates. You said something. Oh, the five upon attain, uh, realizing nibbana in this model, there's we talk about what does nibbana look like while you're still alive, and then when you die. So you're fully enlightened or fully liberated. What does that look like? And at that point, there's no future arising of the five aggregates. I may have misspoken, but that's what I meant to say. That's all I meant. Okay, so that—that's—that's that's a special case of you know you're, you're fully liberated and you've died. Now what? That's all I meant. Okay. All right. So now we'll come to this. Which so to call sometimes translated setting in motion or setting rolling the wheel of the Dhamma. This is the discourse attributed to, according to tradition as the first talk that the Buddha gave, and he's back with this group of five again. We've just seen that he's given the second discourse. This is the first one. So this is a big deal in this tradition, and I mean they're all important, but this one, as you'll see at the end, uh, there's all this language about you know. All in these heaven realms, the you know the whole cosmos shook and quake when he gave it. You know they, they're really uh, just it's it's really the tradition putting a lot of importance on the discourse. So I wonder if someone would just start to read and take a little way, and then I'll let you know when we'll when we'll stop. Would anyone care to? Yes, please. Could you get the microphones? Thus I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Varanasi in the Deer Park. Adisipatana, the resort of seers. There he addressed the Okay. Is this better? Oh, like this. Okay. Shall I start over? Hmm? Thus I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Baranasi in the Deer Park. At Isipatana, the resort of seers. There he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Bhikkhus, these two extremes ought not to be followed by one gone forth from the household life. What are the two? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is inferior, low, vulgar, ignoble, and unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Tathagatha avoids both these extremes. It gives rise to vision, it gives rise to knowledge, and it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what is that middle way? It is simply the noble eightfold path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the middle way discovered by the Tathagatha, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, and which gives rise to peace, peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So please pause there. Um, 
So basically, there are two parts to this discourse. One is um, he lays out the middle way. You've probably heard this many times. This is it between these two extremes. And um, we've already talked about how his um, self-mortification is not the way. This pursuit of sense pleasures, it just goes right back to what was in the fire sermon. That's what he's talking about. That's not the way to the ultimate happiness. So we've already talked about that. And then he's saying the middle way is this eightfold path. As we'll see, we're going to look at the four noble truths. The fourth noble truth is, is this eightfold path. It's how to put how to practice. Um, I'm not planning to we if, if, if we once we get to the main part here, which we're going to in a moment, if we want to talk about the elements, of the eightfold path, we'll have some choices in what we do for the ending of the of our time. We certainly can get into that. But I wasn't intending to lay out the eightfold path today, what each of these are. But I do want to say something about where we use this word right, right view, right intention, right speech. In the Pali, I have not listed that here on your notes, but it's uh, the word is summa. So each of the Pali words will start with summa, which has been translated as right. Um, again, it's one of these words that I think is um, where, again, we're kind of stuck with it because everyone seems to use it. Although there are people starting to change it to be wise and skillful which I think is better. Uh, if you look up in the Pali English dictionary of the words, the meaning of the word summa, the root meaning is to be connected in one with, which is a beautiful sentiment. The point I want to make is it's not a right or wrong. We don't want to get into judging about it. It's more saying what is wise and skillful to head towards this liberation. Right? And certain ways of of thinking and acting and practicing and being, they might be good in certain ways, but they may not be heading towards this. And so that's the meaning. So when we say, we'll continue to say right, but just understand what it means. Yes. What about effective? I'm happy with effective. You know, you get the sense of it, basically. So effective sounds fine. As long as effective... In, in the pursuit of what we want to do, right? Yeah. So, um, okay, so that's the middle way. And now, here we are. This is the, we're coming now, these are the Four Noble Truths. And I wonder if someone would read just the next, just this first paragraph of the, what the First Noble Truth is. Yeah, just please continue. This is the Noble Truth of Suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. Okay, thank you. So that's the four. No, that's the first noble truth. So it doesn't say life is suffering per se, but it is. So first of all, I have a note here. One suffering. It's the word dukkha is in there. So you could substitute every time it says suffering, you could substitute in unreliable, unsatisfactory. Right? Stressful. Some people use the word stress. 
So um, just to be aware when, when it says that. And I think we can probably relate to all of these. But the interesting, the first one, birth is suffering. So birth itself is dukkha. So I want to spend some time really in my mind, the the heart of what the whole our whole time together today is about is this phrase right here. This sort of brings the whole thing together. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Now, when you read the ink, this is the way it's 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 almost always translated is. So we already know what the five aggregates is. That's right. That model. So it's saying this whole five aggregates and it's it's but it, the English is kind of clumsy of clinging or suffering. Five aggregates of clinging. I don't know. It just doesn't quite land or sometimes say five aggregates subject to clinging. It'll be translated that way. So let's take a look here for a few moments. Um, this is the place where the, the, the fire sermon and, the, and the, the, the discourse on not self come together to inform this, to really understand what it's saying. Um, if you look there at your note, which is note number two, which is at, on page, um, uh, the bottom of page eight, I've put the poly there for you. You don't have to memorize all this poly, but uh, there's one particular term that I think is, is key. Panchupadhanakanda dukkha. Pancha is five. The kanda part is a group, the aggregate. So the five aggregates. Upadana is the word for clinging. But it's interesting that upadana has two meanings. One of the meanings is clinging. And the other meaning is fuel for a fire. That's the word upadana. And so to say that, to translate this as the five aggregates with clinging, of clings, to use the word clinging in the translation of the first noble truth is perfectly correct. And again, it's what almost everyone does. Bhikkhu Bodhi's done it there, everyone. However, what happens if we, if we um, substitute in that word the translation, the meaning, that fuel for the fire. The five aggregates, and so I've suggested a translation. I didn't make this translation up. This is Richard Gombrich, the scholar. So what I said in your note on page eight is, is you could translate it as the five aggregates of clinging or suffering, but it could also mean the five burning masses of fuel are suffering. Right. This is where that fire sermon maps directly on here. When right, you could or you could say the five aggregates, uh, the five. You could say the five burning masses of fuel are dukkha, or you could say the five aggregates which are on metaphorically on fire with lust, hatred, delusion, or suffering. Put out the fire. You still have the fuel there, right? The potential. You have the aggregates, but they're not on fire. Um, and I'll, I'll just add. Oh, sorry, Lori, was your hand? I was wondering if you could actually read it as the five aggregates are fuel for the fire. Right. I think that'd be fine to say it like that. Yeah, because they don't have to be on fire. Right. But right. they're fuel. They're fuel. 
and they are dukkha because they're inherent. And the suffering, so the suffering is going to come. It's going to say, what's the cause of suffering? And the second noble truth, we're going to see it's the tanha, it's the craving, is the cause of the suffering. So the tanha's out. We put the fires out, as in the fire sermon. You, you still have fuel, but it's, you've put the fire out. Yeah. It's a different sense, right? But it really brings it very alive to me. Because I've always thought this is awkward translation. Here's another way you can think of it, which I think is really brings the two meanings together. Clinging is the fire. They're not actually separate. When there's clinging, you're on fire. That's what, where they really come together. So in the fire sermon, when we talk about clinging, you know, it's that, it's that lusting, right? I gotta have. Or if it's an unpleasant experience, I gotta get away from or get this away from me, right? That letting go around that, right? Finding that the cliche, it's a cliche because it's, it's so deeply true. It's only a cliche because it's said so many times. It's not just a cliche of inner peace is exactly, I shouldn't even call it a cliche, it's disrespectful, it, it is what this is pointing to, right? In the midst of the ever-changing flow of experience. So what's happening is, it's pointing to trying to start, make a shift in, going back to what I said earlier, that rather than our well-being being completely caught up in have, having certain experiences and definitely not having other experiences, we shift how we relate to whatever experiences are actually happening. And um, we, the fire is being put out. And ultimately it heads exactly to what you were talking about of when we really get... So that's the, that's the start and actually it's the end also. And where it really ends us with is seeing or are you seeing, perceiving, understanding that ultimately it's not a we who are letting go. It's that the whole process... Is, can, is arising, is, is happening conditionally. Including the we who are letting go and the whole thing. And we start to let go around, even the clinging around in the second discourse around what is self even. I have the microphone. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> Um, sometimes we talk about becoming liberated, like I'm going to be liberated. Uh, sometimes I play with the language in my head of everything else is going to become liberated from me, <laughs> from my clinging to it. Yeah, that's and then great. it can just be as it is and <laughs> right. not have me in the way. We kind of get out of the way and stop making a problem. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask a question. I think it might clear up a lot of things. Uh, I've always been confused because it looked like clinging was in two different places. One was clinging and dependent origination. And that's clinging Same word, Upadana. It's clinging to an object. The other is clinging to myself. Is that true? Well, I mean... Uh, clinging to the eye. Well, it's... I mean, if you, if you let these... In the second... It's it's both. It's it's it's. I don't separate those out because use either model you want. Whether it's the sixth sense based model, which is still a model of ourselves as beings, it's just looking at it experientially, or the model of the five aggregates. You could say 
I think they, it works both, and I think it is. It has to be both. It's it's the full range of what we call self and other, inner and outer experience. We don't even separate that out at some point. It's just one unfolding of experience. Um, I think I understand what you're saying, but I actually see it as different uh, because clinging to an object, you're on the wheel. Clinging to myself is wrong view. One occurs as the ninth step of dependent origination, and the other one occurs as the first step, ignorance. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, it's, I think it's, I think I don't separate them out as two different models. I think they all inform each other. This is just, you know, the Four Noble Truths. If uh, The way I look at it, the Four Noble Truths is just laying out, really saying, this gets to the root of the problem. It's, it's really taking that, that piece of dependent origination out. It's starting right with, because uh, Vedana, right, leads to... Um, right, leads to the tanha, the craving, which leads, which conditions the mind for clinging, the upadana. It's just pulling that little piece out in the same order here. It's just not looking at the whole, everything on both sides on dependent origination. Okay. All right. Yes. So the phrase that I'm actually really liking in part of this is a separation from what is pleasing is suffering. And I'm really, you know, kind of going through this is seeing how life, it's like, to me, it's understanding why there's a quality of this dukkha from the separating where that, that clinging and the fire happens. Right. And, and part of it, when I look at life for my own life, it's like even, you know, someone that's miserable still is clinging to life, even though they see it. So there's, to me, just in my own words, I'll say, there's this unique miracle of what is this about? And that I think we all have a sense and wonder of, no matter what level that we're at. And we don't want to let it go. And that separation just of the thought of wanting to continue to live which is impossible, no matter what, we'll have to have a quality of dukkha. Right. It's an impossibility. Yes. And that's even what gets, that's what gets talked about here in the Second Noble Truth. So let's just bring the Second Noble Truth in right here. I'll just read this one. This, this is the Noble Truth of the origin of suffering. So the first was the or, Noble Truth of dukkha. This is the Noble Truth of the organ, origin of dukkha. It is craving that's the key term that produces the renewal of being accompanied by enjoyment and lust and enjoying this and that. In other words, craving for sense pleasures, craving for being, craving for non-being. It's any kind of. So this craving, the word in Pali is tanha. I think Victor said it, it literally means thirst. Right. So we get the sense of that kind of thirst. That is. And that's going right back to the fire sermon of being on fire with that greed, hatred, and illusion. So that's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's that craving. And that's the fire, the burning that's in the first noble truth. If, because the third noble truth, we'll go ahead and bring that one too, says it's the cessation of dukkha. 
And it's the remainderless fading away and cessation, giving up, relinquishing, letting go, rejecting of that same craving. That's it. When I say that's it, I think it's a profound teaching. I'm not uh, diminishing its importance, but it's, a, it's, a, it's conceptually simple. It's the ending of that tanha, the thirst. What kind of thirst? Uh, for our looking for our well-being in more pleasant, less unpleasant, which is the fire that's burning, which is causing the suffering. If you put the, the if you end the craving, which puts the fire out of the first noble truth, it's still dukkha in one sense. It's all your experience is dukkha in the sense that it's still inherently unreliable and unsatisfactory. But you're not suffering around it because you're not looking to the experience for your happiness and well-being. So that you stop looking there so you don't make a problem about it. The five aggregates are still unreliable. The body's going to get sick and old. Experiences come and go. The, cha- the flow of pleasant and unpleasant is still going to happen. You're just not making a problem. That's not where we look. We've let go of, of, a, of attachment, if you will, or, or clinging or identification with any of it. And it's now perceived as, as an impersonal, not self, unfo- uh, uh, unfolding of experience due to causes and conditions. That's a deep let. And then so there's the question, what would life look like live from that place? That's the journey that we're all, that's the exploration we're all engaged in. And then here, we're not, we're getting away from reading everything exactly, but the fourth noble truth, it was already mentioned in the middle way, fourth noble truth is then the eightfold path. It's the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Right? So there's the four noble truths. There's more in the sutta that we're going to, uh, we'll look at briefly, but that's the basic message. So this was what I was hoping to bring together is how these three sort of inform each other and inform our, really inform our understanding of the Four Noble Truths, especially the First Noble Truth. Bringing in that idea of the fire imagery. So kind of pulling this together, it's almost like the, the seeing that dukkha can never be satisfactory for bringing happiness or bringing peace. At least so ultimately. Ultimately, right? So there's, there's no, it's unreliable. So it's that constantly seeing it and to the point where we get tired of seeing it or weary of looking for that. The, the, the Nibbadanti, the Nibbata. Right. Nibbadanti. So it's that enchantment with and knowing that or seeing that we're no longer mesmerized by reaching out for these things that are dukkha because we finally realize everything's dukkha and we let go of looking for it there, right? right? So that's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think how I've really been impacted by this in my own self is saying, is working with someone that's ill and they're dying. And they get to that point, like you're saying, it is, there's so much suffering here. And then there's a point where it's just like, I don't want this anymore. 
and there's just a releasing. And usually it may not be long until they, someone passes, you know, and it's just like, oh, I mean, that's been a huge teacher for me watching, you know, someone go through that. Yeah. It's that letting, they're finally recognizing this is all suffering. I'm going to lay it down. Right. Yeah. And so when we bring this back to practice now, hopefully it, it doesn't feel too complicated. Hopefully, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big undertaking to put into practice, but I think people wouldn't be here uh, if you weren't interested in, you know, how can we live as deeply and authentically from the place of these truths as we can for our own sake. In other words, how can we free our own hearts and minds? And it's also, of course, not just for ourselves, because the more free we are, it affects everyone at the very least that we that we interact with, how we show up in the world. We, we become less reactive. We're not being, again, we're not slaves to the greed, hatred, and delusion. We can be responsive. It's going back to this res- responsive, but it does show up and ha- it does affect just our, the way we show up in all aspects of our lives. And recognizing that we're human beings. And in t- so, you know, we're going to have times when um, we, we are free in the moment and we are, our hearts are open and our minds are quiet. And we're going to have times when, you know what? There's still more work to be done, so the right causes and conditions come together, and we did get hooked, and we reacted. And it's just showing that, oh, more work needs to be done. You know, we don't have to start judging ourselves or making a problem, although we can feel the suffering when it happens. And so, really, what we're, this is why when we do practices such as insight meditation, there's many, many ways that that's done, and many kinds of practices besides insight meditation. It goes back to what I said earlier. There's really among the many um, things that are qualities that are being developed, two main ones are what the ability of the undistractedness of mind, the steadiness. So, and then right along with that, the, what's called mindfulness and clear comprehension, being present with what's happening, clearly knowing, perceiving, understanding what's happening in the moment, and those come together, and then we t- that awareness then is turned towards the whole range of our experience. You can think of it in the five aggregates model. You know, we we sit here and we close our eyes, or you could meditate with your eyes open, and we turn the awareness inward. And what's happening? We're really plumbing the depths of our own being, coming to know the nature of our experience more clearly. And and we want to keep these teachings there in our minds. We don't have to keep bubbling up and thinking it through, although some kind of sort of uh, verbal or cognitive reflection, I think, can be useful. But then it informs us, and then we come directly experientially to see what's true, and, and, and we start to bump up against the, the cause of suffering. And as we're able to do through practice, we learn how to let go more and more and more when we are clinging, or to not cling in the first place, and it just grows. Or if you're using a sense sixth sense base model. All experience, whether it's inner and outer, is coming. We don't even make a distinction between inner and outer in that model. And it's just perceived in the same way, whichever way we, we want to work, or you know, we both ways. 
And so that's the path of practice. And the eightfold path then is, you know, it's basically um, the right view, the right understanding, uh, the right livelihood, right speech, right action, right livelihood is really the morality piece. And then the right effort, right mindfulness, and the right samadhi is, is concentration is the meditation piece. Um, there's one other piece just for completeness here um, that we could spend a lot of time on also. And if you want to talk about it some more, we can. But just to end, I want to just um, just bring this up. If you turn to the top of page seven. These four noble truths, each of the four noble truths then is talked about in three ways. And in fact, there's a book out by Philip Moffat called Dancing with Life. And this is exactly what his whole book is about, is these 12 ways. So we'll just name them here. And uh, it's a good book and an easy read if you're interested. And it's, it's uh, readily available. It just came out this last year, Dancing with Life, if you're interested. But basically, he goes through each of these. And for, each, for the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, um, he's saying, the Buddha's saying it's to be understood. I'll come back in a moment to that. The second, the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. So we want to let go of, of what's causing the suffering. The third, uh, the cessation is to be realized. That makes sense. And then the fourth noble truth is to, of the Eightfold Path is to be developed. So we want to understand. Then we want to... Um, Abandon the cause of suffering through that. We've realized the third, the end of suffering, and then the, the path leading to it we want to develop. And so each of these is talked about in three ways that, that are connected. So, for example, it says at the top, this is the noble truth of, of suffering. So it's just you just uh, know it, if you will, or have heard it. Then the second piece on here is that it should be under, is that it should be understood, and then it finally is fully understood. It's just talking about a progression of working through it, and the same for all of these. You know, this is the noble truth of suffering. The second, it is to be abandoned, and then that it has been abandoned. I don't want to get into this too much, uh, uh, just from a time perspective. But it's just talking about with each of these, you know, how do we come to it? We first hear the teachings. And then, you know, we realize, oh, this really needs to be understood or abandoned. We, and then so we're cultivating. And then finally, when it ha when we have reached the culmination, not just the culmination, but to any degree that the mind has been free, we come to know that. Oh, I have let go of some clinging around this particular aspect of my life. And I see that there is more peace and happiness here. You don't have to be a Buddha. to. to we want to recognize the, that. So it's just talking about that. And it's laid out in so these four noble truths, three steps or three aspects, I should say. That's 12. And the Buddha just, there's this basically um, this paragraph at the bottom when he was just saying all 12 of these aspects uh, Twelve aspects, three phases of each of the four noble truths are important. That's basically what he's saying. And I would recommend Philip's book. And then the ending of this sutta, and this, is, this text has been compressed a little bit, but this is the part that um, 
Um, of course, I was not there, so I don't actually know, but I would say that where the, where the tradition has um, put the, you know, you make a beautiful painting and then on the frame you embellish and you, and you, because you, you're just honoring uh, and elevating that beautiful painting. And so here, you know, we have this text where, and there's a whole cosmology in, in, these, in the early a belief system in the early Buddhist, Buddhism and uh, still to today. And so, uh, you know, all these different realms of what they call the devas, which are these heavenly beings and so many. And for all these levels, you know, it's, it was just um, kind of, uh, you could say, shook their world. Um, a great cry went up, from, you know, because now a Buddha has been born and all of the universe and so Yes. Um, actually, I would like to hear a little bit more about these three different aspects of each truth. Um, it's not talked about a lot. I mean, yeah. You don't hear instructions for practice for each of these areas, for example, or other things that they point to in the suttas. I mean, just so I guess I. I'll leave it a little bit open. Is that I'd like? I'd just like to hear more about where that fits in. Um, I mean, I can think of the fact that after liberation is achieved, there's supposed to be a moment, of, or after some fetters have been cut, you're supposed to go back and look at them. So there's this process of reflection, or that there are ten steps to the eightfold path when you're an arahant. There are these extra ones about knowledge and that sort of thing. Are they tying into this? Where does yeah. this tie in? Well, yeah. Um, so let me just say this. There's whole study groups like on Philip's book, Dancing with Life. So you could go into a lot of each one. But just say the way I take this just on a, on a higher level is it's just saying that we don't want to just take the each of the four noble truths. And I mean, there is one level that we just hear the noble truths and um, we, we understand them. We put them in practice. I think this is just talking more, giving us more detail on how to put us in, put it into practice. So, for example, if we forget even the three aspects, it's just telling us that well, what is it about the first noble truth that's important? Uh, we hear it, but it's important to, to understand it is, is the key that it's, he's pointing out. Here, that's all. And the second one, it's not just to hear it. And understand it, but we really do want, through that understanding, want to let go of the craving. It's point. It's telling us what to do, is the whole point. So um, you, I think he's just to me. It's pointing out the obvious, but um, maybe that's you know it may not be because he goes on to to you know to tease it out in more detail. So when you hear the teaching that the origin of dukkha is is tanha craving. I think that entails, well, we should let that go. So he's just saying here, it should be abandoned. When we hear the third noble truth that there's an ending of suffering, right? To me, it's obvious, well, that's what, where it's pointing to go to. Well, here he's saying it should be realized. He's just sort of restating what I think is the obvious there. And then uh, the fourth one on um, it should be developed. You put a fourth noble truth. It's, it, to me, it's sort of built in, but he, I think he's saying it should be developed. So that's just the basic. Uh, I think he's, in a way, just restating it in a different way to clarify how I take it. So I, I, I don't. I could say more about it. I, I suppose. I mean, do I you think have there's some more, more to, about that. What would you I like don't offhand, except that, um, you know, the Buddha rarely says things that are 
teases them apart when there isn't some important reason for that. Well, I think it's important. And like if you read um, uh, Philip's book, you know, we'll go through each one of these and he's got whole chapters. And um, uh, so like, what does that look like? How do we put it into practice and everything? So okay. I think that's what it's talking about. So you could um, like. Yeah. So what the Buddha is just stating here, though, is, you know, there's this. Let's, let's just look. So there's this first noble truth. So um, the first is, is just. Um, this is the noble truth of dukkha. So he says here, this vision, the knowledge, understanding, like this arose, by the way, he says, not heard by me before. It just as an aside, in Theravada Buddhism, it's considered that uh, one of the differences between, uh, like if you become fully enlightened in a Buddha, that the Buddha discovered the path on his own, not heard by him before. It was a new insight, whereas this is just the tradition teaching this way. Um, whereas we've heard the teachings so we're following a path. This is an aside. I don't know if they're interested in that kind of stuff or not. So, you know, um, the second one here then, so he's just saying, okay, I, I, under, I got this. And then he's saying, he's telling us to, to really get that, boy, really to be understood. I take this as just really deepening that, you know, um, um, it's to be, uh, when we say to understood, not just hear it, but really uh, to your core, to really lived as a real living truth. And then um, it has been understood. I take that again, not only to when we're our hearts ourselves, but um, I think it's so important uh, not to pass over, first of all, our own wholesome qualities the times when we really are more free and liberated or at peace or our hearts do stay open in a moment in relationship to an experience. Um, uh, really noticing those because we want to be aware of where we are liberated and the own whole, our wholesome qualities of mind so we can keep those, keep the wholesome alive. Um, you know, I don't know if this is enough, but this is what I have to say on it, just in a nutshell. Here, I haven't written a whole book on. It. I've read his book, but um, you know. Maybe I could add one thing because I like what Biko Bodhi said, which was really short and it helped me a lot. Was the idea is um, first is to know the truth, like you know, suffering, the cessation. So first to know the truth. Second to know the task associated with that truth, understanding, developing. And third is to do the task that is associated with that truth. So that's why there's three times four, and that's where the 12 is. Yeah. For me, that was Great. kind of how I understood it, and that was yeah. very helpful for More me. More succinct and clear. <laughs> so thank you. Yes. Uh, at the top of at the top of page eight. Now, during this utterance, there arose in the venerable Kodani the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma. Whatever is subject to arising is also subject to sensation. Right. The next line says, "When the wheel of truth had thus been set rolling, my question is, was it set rolling because the vision came to a hearer of the utterance, or was it set rolling by the utterance itself?" I think this goes to transmission as part of the. Yeah, um, well, I take this that um, the, the, the setting in motion, so 
That's an interesting question. So when the Buddha, according to tradition, when the Buddha attained his enlightenment, at first he decided he was not going to teach. He, and it's said in the text that he said, you know, it's too subtle, it's too hard, people just aren't going to get it. So he just decided to live, his, he thought he might go uh, and just live his life out as a student under some other teacher somewhere and just quietly live his life out. And then it's said that the god Brahma, I think it was one of the gods, came to, Buddha, to the Buddha and said, you know, and begged him and said, you know, for the sake of all beings, um, so this is the myth, by the way, and when I say myth, I'm not, it doesn't mean it's true or not true, but it's just been passed down as the, the legend or the myth and the, the way the teachings came. Um, these things may or may not have actually happened this way, that the, that the Buddha, he said, in the, the, the phrase that was used is, there's some who have only a little dust on their eyes, and, it, and they could see. And so the Buddha was convinced to teach, and I mean, we went through a, some more things happened in the story and he ended up here. So uh, according to this, this discourse is the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dharma then. It wasn't his enlightenment that set in motion the wheel of the Dharma. If he had just, I mean, you could say, I guess if you want to, but that's not what it's saying here. This discourse is when he set in motion the Dharma because what is the Dharma? The Dharma are these teach. The Dharma can be thought of as the truth, but it's also these, I think here, so the teachings for the liberation of beings. It was set in motion here. But there was a receiver to the teaching. That's the point. It was not an utterance in a void. There was a receiver of the teaching. That's so. Yeah. I, I'm not following your point, but yes. I, I, I'm, yeah. Could you say more? Or? Well, I wasn't even alluding to the fact that his enlightenment was the setting of the motion arm. It's that if, if he made these utterances and nobody got it, would right. the wheel of Dharma had been set in motion? Which I, well, I mean, that, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. Actually, I don't know if we, does you know, this might be. <laughs> it does matter. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Because so. there isn't a teacher unless there's a student. That, those are selves, they're identities that arise together. And also, I think maybe more importantly, this is the birth of the Sangha. Uh, and if you're going to have the three components of this practice there has to be a sangha and this was the you know until somebody understands it doesn't exist yeah yeah so you know really that's how i take it and but i would also say look anybody we can each take our own meaning when someone says setting in motion for each of us whatever you want it to mean to me it means it's it's set motion in motion in the world and it, students and teachers, and it takes hold, and that's what's meant by it here. But, you know, um, you could put another meaning for yourself on it, too, I think. But I think that's the general meaning, that it, the way it's taken. Um, yeah. I, I think we could even apply that, um, you know, like these, um, the 12 aspects, the idea, like what Diana was saying, that there's, a, there's an understanding of the truth, and then there's the actual doing or the cultivating or the experiencing, the experiential knowledge. So there's one thing to say, this is a great idea. And then there's another thing to put it into practice. And then the third thing is the actual realization or the accomplishing of that, right? Yeah. In the same way, in this last part, it's the idea that the Buddha became enlightened 
But it wasn't until he actually passed the knowledge on and that someone benefited from that, that the wheel was set in motion, right? So in other words, the knowledge could be put out there, but if nothing happened with it, then I don't think that we could say that the yeah. wheel of of the Dhamma started, right? Right. And, and another thing I've also thought of that goes back to that is there's another, this is a little bit of this aside, there's another discourse which is a simile that's used which is the simile of the raft and the simile of the raft it's an image of if you wanted to cross safely over a body of water you put in a lot of effort to build this raft you put he says like sticks and leaves or whatever and you built this raft and with a lot of effort using your arms and legs paddled safely across to the other shore he said the buddhist image is would it make sense then to put that raft on your back and carry it around with you wherever you went? And they said, well, of course not. That wouldn't make sense. The raft has served its purpose. And then you, it was proper to leave the raft and go about your business. And the Buddha says, similarly, the Dhamma, the Dharma, is for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of clinging. And so it, the word Dharma has a number of meanings. So if, the, if none of this had come to be, the Buddha didn't attain his enlightenment, he never taught. Dharma in the sense of the way things are is still there. It's not nothing that can be set in motion or not. Just, it's just the truth of things. So here I take it more in the sense of putting the teachings, you know, putting a whole system, the Sangha and all of this in motion that can be as the the way uh, to, it's, it's all conditioned <laughs> too. So, you know, but anyway, he's set something in motion that by definition wasn't in motion before. So it's referring more to the teachings, the way I would take it there. And that, 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 that then uh, necessitates, as you were saying, teachers and students and Sangha and, and yeah, yes. For me, the way I'm kind of hearing this motion again brings us back to the word verb that we were using earlier. So there's the solidity of intellectualism around the teachings, and yes, I can hear it. I think something what you're saying, but I cannot do anything with it. It's like this sounds great, you know, and I I can sometimes see this in all communities of intellectualism and feel it even happens in our community. It's like you know, or even friends that I'll share that don't practice. This sounds great, you know, I think it's a great idea, but they're not practicing. And so the verb is the practice um, of the practice of the sitting and the meditation and doing the actual work, you know, developing it. And so it, it to me it's learning not to get trapped in that yeah. intellectual idea. This is great, you know, let's talk about, to me, all these teachings and everything, but it's like, okay, well, how do now? What am I going to do with right. it? And I've got to get out of my head into that experiential body, which right. is the motion. The verb to me now is taking the motion to actually do the work, right. to you know, to push the will. Yeah. That means the will is now moving. It's not just here anymore. It's now picking so up that's things along the way. Yeah. Great. Um, let me just point one last thing out here. It's about twelve minutes to one. And uh, I want to just at least I, we can still come back to this if, if there's more people want to say. But I just want to point to here when one of the five. So remember, in the second discourse, all five, the group of five got it. 
Well, here in the first discourse, in this one, uh, only Condonia got it. So he has a special place. He's the first of the Arahats. Oh, he's just, excuse me. Yeah, 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 excuse me. Right. They all became Arahants and that and then that's right when there were six Arahants in the world after they got right. He's the first one. He, he got the first stage of enlightenment. You're correct. Um, um, we won't go into the stages of enlightenment, but this is what it says. So so at the bottom, the, the Buddha's all excited now. Condonia, say, see, I, I don't know if he was really excited. We don't know his mind, but I see. Well, see, so this is interesting. We don't really know what the state of his mind was, but I, I take it. This is just totally my overlay here. I like to imagine we're sitting around just like this. But it was the Buddha was there and it was just a small group, intimate, just like we are here. This this real. And then the Buddha was like, you know, he's he's got it. He's got it was like and he was just a real but coming from a deep place, um, you know. So it's that he was a human being. The Buddha, the Buddha could have his excitement that, you know, out of we would think out of a compassion for all beings. But listen to what this is. This is key at the top of page eight. What he um, uh, what he uh, what the realization was. Sounds so simple. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation or passing away. And a matter of fact, this is an important one of the pithy or succinct ways that all the Dharma is summed up in a number of places through the suttas, and even when the Buddha was uh, dying, you know, and he was just kind of giving this final teaching in a real concise way. So this idea, whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation, the whole Dharma is contained in there, right? Because let's just quickly review back. All of the three characteristics are right there. If you really got that right, impermanence is stating explicitly. Why is it that even pleasant experiences and happiness are dukkha? It's that inherent unreliability that's contained right in here because whatever's going to rise is going to pass away. Anatta, because the nature of our own being is to arise and pass away. Everything that was in the fire sermon is right there, too. The mind would let go. We wouldn't be so driven again by greed, hatred, and delusion if we really got this deeply. It's not only the realization, it's pointing to the path of practice that is here, too. For noble, uh, the noble truths are here. That was explicit, right? What's the cause of... You know, of what's the origin of suffering is craving. It's all right here. So we don't want to just pass over. Oh, whatever's a subject to arising is subject to passing away. Oh, yeah, okay. No, that's the place to stop. That could be your whole practice. Is you need a mind that's steady enough. And clear enough, but just connecting with that truth of impermanence and um, where we get caught, you know, how we relate to that. That could be your whole doorway in right there. The last thing I wanted to say is if we, when we bring it back to the path of practice, and in particular, just one word about formal meditation practice itself for those of you who are probably most or maybe all of you are uh, meditators or at least have given it a try. Um, 
this points to something very, very important, which is a big piece of meditating as we cultivate our meditation, meditative states, if you will, certain states of consciousness or experiences are cultivated along with it. And they take many forms, stillness, peace, bliss, so many experiences that can come. You could just call them, anyway, so many experiences. And one of the traps is that, that uh, and it's understandable because meditation can be, it's not always, but it can be very, very pleasant. And we can mistake cultivating pleasant meditative states for the real goal, which is the liberation, because the real goal of the meditation, is the, I think of the pleasant meditative states as the, I don't know if side effect is, is quite accurate, but for now I'll just say it's, it's an effect of, but it's, the meditation is really in service of developing the clarity of mind, going back to this concentration or undistracted ability, and strengthening our mindfulness in order to really get this deeply. Going back to how we fulfill those steps of, the, of, of practicing the Four Noble Truths, or to put it in one sentence to really get that whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. If we really keep that in mind, the next time you're meditating, say if you, if for those of you who sat meditation retreats, and you're having this beautiful meditation, and then you get up for the walking period and you come back for the next meditation and you're suffering and you think something's gone wrong and you're struggling to get back to the meditative state that you just lost. If we just realize these are conditioned states, they come and go. Nothing went wrong, it just changed. It cuts a lot of the, it not only points to the path of practice, but it cuts a lot of the suffering along the way. I just wanted to bring that last piece in. Um, so um, it's five minutes to one. Anything else to? Um, I hope you feel like you got a sense of the three. Uh, you know, we we had to. Again, each one of these. You know, I encourage you to go back and spend a lot of time going back to these twelve aspects. You know, uh, I think again, I think Philip's book is wonderful. Um, spend more time if you wish. Yes. Is it on? Yeah. One of the visions I had, or the yes, uh, as you were speaking, was myself, my uh, perceived absolute self, uh, floating in the river of being, with all this stuff going by, and I'm grasping, grasping, grasping at all the little things that are going by, and somehow the way you said it today made me. Uh, Get that as a metaphor, and it's very useful. So, thank you. Okay, great, wonderful. All right. I was hoping to do about a two-minute closing, if we could, but did you have some announcements, or did you just have a comment? Oh, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to, to make a couple announcements um, af- after we finish. It would be nice to have a few volunteers to help tidy up because there is a day long tomorrow with Rick Hansen, so it'd be nice to have this place looking nice. Okay, so I assume what's needed is maybe straighten up the chairs and just a, basically a vacuuming. It's probably not a lot of work, right? Just a few minutes? Just a few minutes. Yeah. Okay, great. So hopefully some people can help. Okay. 
So thank you all for um, hanging out together and exploring these teachings and just sharing in our practice and Dharma together. Um, so I'd like to just take, it'll be very short, maybe maybe more than two, three minutes or so, just to do a little closing together. So I'd like to invite you, perhaps you're already doing so, but to, if not, my, let your mindful awareness connect in to your body. And also, you know, your, your heart, states of your heart and mind, just your whole experience. Just whatever's going on, you may, you know, maybe a little hunger as it's uh, a little past our normal lunchtime. You may be tired. There may be things today that really were interesting or inspiring, perhaps some difficult parts that you didn't connect with. Whatever your experience is. And then I would also invite you to notice not only what's happening in your experience, but how you are relating to your experience. And see if there can be a sense of, um, it's really a non-clinging, if a sense of letting go or letting be or allowing. So we're not in a in contention with whatever's happening. It's a letting be. So you could think of it as uh, not getting, not uh, having those fires burning. And also to notice if there is something happening in your experience and it is hard to let go around it or find that place of stillness or peace, if you will then bring some acceptance for that place in you. I would also, you could stay with that if you wish, or perhaps take a few moments to reflect on your own good qualities, your own wholesome qualities. That includes your sincere intention. You know, something brought you here today, for example. Or it may be connecting with the place in you that um, I'm sure is with all of us that sincerely is aiming towards deepening in your understanding of the teachings, putting it into practice in your life. It's your, it's your own goodness, if you will. I, I like that word, or your own wholesome qualities. And then finally, um, well, this is called traditionally called the dedication of merit. And by the term merit, I, I'm referring to um, all the good energy, good qualities, wholesome qualities that, that we've cultivated by our time together. Traditionally, we could use the word merit. Um, we... We recognize that we don't practice for ourselves alone. That, in fact, we said earlier, you cannot practice for yourself alone. That as we free our own hearts and minds, it, it affects everyone that we come in contact with. And so we 
we can offer up uh, this merit. You could think of it as an intention. It could be a wish or a prayer, however, however it works for you. That may this merit, may this, these good energies or qualities be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all very much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.